A woman has to live her life or live to repent not having lived it. D.H. Lawrence. You know, you left out the best part of that quote. Oh, I did? Yeah. The rest of the quote says, Believe me. And she took another sip of brandy, which maybe was her form of repentance. Welcome to Dirty Girl Books from Darcy to Fabio. I'm Blanche. I am also Blanche. And today we are talking about Lady Chatterley's Lover by D.H. Lawrence. So the synopsis of this story is it concerns a young married woman, Lady Chatterley, also known as Connie, whose upper class baronet husband, Sir Clifford Chatterley, is wounded in World War I. He's paralyzed from the waist down and he is left impotent. So she then has an affair with a hired gatekeeper, Oliver Mellers. She grows to love him and believes that she is bearing his child. She plans to leave Clifford, her husband, after a trip to Venice. But the return of Oliver's wife and Clifford's refusal to grant her a divorce thwarts her plan. It closes with the possibility that there is a way for them to be together. Thus, it falls within our category of romance novels with a hopeful, optimistic ending. Now, I will say, well, we will say, that this book was written in the 1920s. It takes place post-World War I, and it has some problematic language in it. It talks disparagingly about black people, Jewish people. It talks despairingly about homosexual people. Yeah, pretty much name it, and it probably is going to be offensive to that group of people. But if you think about it, it's a product of its time. So we are not condoning this language, but we are giving you a disclaimer that the language exists in the book. Yes, and we, why are we discussing it, Blanche? Why are we discussing the book or yes. the problematic parts of why, it? Why did we choose this book? Well, that's your part. It, oh. You talk about why we chose this okay. book. Okay, so we're sort of asking the audience to set aside the problems of the book and recognize it for its place in history as a romance novel. Yes. Correct? Because, it, like I said, it was published at the beginning of the 20th century, and life was different then. That does not mean that we should continue to be that way now. Right, but you've also said that for books also published in this time, this one is still problematic. So you can't just say, yes. oh, it, it's because it, it was the 20s. Yeah, it is still problematic yeah. even though. Okay, yes. in comparison to other books. So yes. we we do not condone the opinions of D.H. Lawrence and we do not wish to ignore them. However, we it would take us um, a tremendous amount of time and energy to discuss all of the problems with those parts. And also that is not the ultimate point of this podcast. Exactly. Because we are white, heteronormative females, mostly cis, and therefore we are not necessarily qualified to talk about all of the problems that exist exactly. in this book. What are we qualified to talk about? Almost nothing. <laughs> Let's make that very clear as well. There's no qualifications for why we're doing this we do this primarily for our own edification and benefit if someone else happens to want to listen and benefit from it far be it from us to stop them 
correct? Correct. Okay. It's an excuse to do something other than live our normal daily life. Yes. Okay. And even more poignantly, we are discussing this specific problematic book because it was your first romance novel. Me, Blanche. You, Blanche. It was. It was. As far as, I mean, my long-term memory is not so hot. However, I definitely have physical memories that are stirred up when I read this book. So I am confident that it was my first piece of erotic literature that I read. And listened to, by the way. I had, I don't think I had a tape. I think I had a CD. It was the 90s, so CDs were... I think it was probably a CD. Yeah. I would imagine. I will go first because I don't mean to insult your 17-year-old self. Too late! Whenever you start with no offense or I don't mean to insult, an insult is about to start. But we've also discussed the problems that already exist in this book. It's one of the things that gave me the biggest pause. I have not read an organic piece of anti-Semitic language in a very long time and I do not necessarily want to repeat the experience. I will parse that out of the rest of my discussion about this book. But I it, thought it did... we already gave the disclaimer at the I beginning. I know. I already told I said I said I was parsing it out. I said I was parsing it out. <laughs> but a separate from this, I recognize that this book has some standard romance novel I don't want to say tropes, but it's it's got the parts, the meat, the bones of a romance novel. I got lost a little bit in the other parts that weren't so much about a romance novel and were more about British society and class commentary. I had a bit of issues turning that off, and I thought that too much of those were even reflected in the characters and their opinions. So I still had a bit of difficulty digging deep and identifying with these characters as people that I really rooted for or as people that I saw myself in and therefore I had a problem really embracing it as a romance novel. I had to turn off that little piece in my brain that I had to turn off the little piece in my brain that dispels reality because there was too much reality in this book for me. But that's not to say that I didn't acknowledge pieces of it that were very poignant or very well written or really hit in a way that I know that a lot of other things that were written before this time did not. Mm -hmm. And they did hit me in that way. I would just say proportionately, the pieces of this book that hit me were only about 25% of this book, where if you look at the actual plot of the book, about 50% of the book is sex and, and romance and... You and think so? Okay, well, that's fine. I mean, I, I hear what you're saying, and I think it's important to acknowledge that, that for those that are looking to pick up a true romance novel in the way that we understand them now, this is not just that. It this has... is more. It's more than a romance novel in that there, he had an agenda to talk about the industrialization of England. We are not going to get into that no. here. It is, it is just a heavier book. It's a heavier book. It is, again, has been chosen because it, it was the first piece of erotic literature that I had picked up. And it was very interesting to pick it up um, as I approached my midlife versus when I read it when I was 17. And to, and to so today we're gonna focus more on the 
emotional relationship between Connie and Oliver. And because, again, because it's a deeper, more complex book, we just don't have time to get into all of those themes. But it's important to recognize that they're there. And for our listeners who are looking for possible recommendations, they need to understand that this book goes, you know, off in different directions that they may want to go but may not. It, yeah, it was presented and it's got a reputation for being one book. It doesn't necessarily actually reflect that yes. based on the press and the and the knowledge that society has given it. It was it's it's toted as a banned book for being about sex, but in reality it's much more complex and the and the plot has a lot more in it than just sex. Yeah. Great. Thank you. I appreciate your perspective about it because it's important because again, nostalgia how do you say it? Now you ask me, I don't remember. <laughs> Nostalgia is a heady poison. It can blind us to certain things that we didn't know at the time or that we just put away because it doesn't it doesn't compute with our feelings inside. Mm-hmm. And so we just we push it away because it's hard for us to marry those two ideas Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean they don't exist it just means that our brains have a little bit difficulty processing them so i can understand how you as a 17 year old picked up this book glossed over a whole lot of things and just dug for the pieces that you really connected with whereas you go back now and read it and you're like oh i didn't even realize this was in there because you have just whitewashed for lack of a better term that out of your brain it's just it's essentially been erased because it's not important to your memory. Sure, and I may not have fully understood it at the time that yeah. I read it. So what we'd like to do today, I think, is to speak about the themes that still... Well... That we find interesting in examining romance novels. Before or, we do that, okay. do you want to give more input on your... Oh. Um, you know, my memories of reading this were... any depiction of sex or intimacy was regarded as taboo, was not considered something to be indulged or explored. And when I read the buildup and encounters between Connie and the man whom with she has an affair, I felt a buildup and I felt a, it presented it in a positive light that was interesting and erotic to me as a young person. Um, I found it interesting to look into what attracts a woman to a man beyond just, oh, it's a boy that I find is cute. The theme of, you know, physical versus intellectual attraction that is explored in this book was something that I responded to when I was young. So Yeah, and I think that's a really big difference with this book and a really big focus in this book is Connie starts out the book attracted to her husband she's very intellectually stimulated by him she feels very rewarded by the fact that he he acknowledges that she gives him value he feels like his books that he's writing would not be as good without her Mm -hmm. and she also feels the same way that she's consciously and positively contributing to this relationship and positively contributing to their lifestyle as a whole and as the book goes along, she realizes that she does not put value in that anymore. Right. Once she encounters Oliver, her perspectives shifts, her priorities shift, and she realizes that she wants something more out of her physical relationship. She wants something more out of her romantic relationships. And that's 
a really important thing that everybody comes up against. Mm-hmm. Right. So she had married Clifford because she thought him her sort of intellectual superior, and that was stimulating enough. And then as they get into the marriage and he becomes wounded and the physical is no longer an option, she understands that the lack of sensuality may not be enough, right? The, the, that the intellectual alone without sensuality may not be enough. Right. And mm-hmm. to some degree, there is a little bit of discussion of, well, they're very intellectual beings, so, so they, they almost reject the physical. Mm-hmm. The Clifford, the people he's with, even Connie, they mm-hmm. reject the physical. They, they think it's beneath them. They right. think it's unnecessary. And this sort of lofty, this sort of lofty... It's an aristocratic intellectual. And yes. so, so for those who haven't read the book, the when they return, when he returns from the war and they, you know, go to their mansion, he's a baron, she's now a lady, these intellectuals start to flock to them because he has had some level of success as a writer. And so she's interested in that because her background is one of an intellectual kind of cultured person. However, it starts to become clear that that is a very empty premise. So one day she and Clifford go for a walk and they discuss preserving the Chatterley line despite Clifford's impediment and he suggests that they have a child with another man meaning that she obviously has there's it's given that he's aware that she will or has possibly already slept with other men which she has one of the intellectuals that comes to the house um, she meets this with sort of a uh, indifference possibly out of shock to speak you know have your husband speak about this in a matter-of-fact way and then immediately after this she meets Mellers who is Oliver Mellers Um, she they go to the woods and he emerges with a swift menace so an interesting piece about this to me is this idea of when the protagonist man how he is introduced and we as women, what do we look for? What are the qualities that make us attracted to men, which are then transferred possibly into a romance novel? So what do you think about the way that he's introduced to her? I thought he was introduced relatively innocuously. Mm-hmm. I admit I went into this book I had no idea what the plot was I just assumed that she was going to have an affair with somebody I had no idea who it was going to be so whenever we meet Oliver I'm like is this the guy I don't know it seems like it's not going to be the guy (laughs) and then it was the guy and it worked out but it was just very laissez-faire the Mm -hmm. whole thing they just Mm -hmm. you know oh yeah this is the guy that raises my pheasants and Oliver's like yeah I'm, I'm the pheasant guy and yeah, he's the gatekeeper, which is essentially a caregiver to the grounds on yeah, any level. Yeah, he's a groundskeeper, mm-hmm. yeah. He and and she gets a little bit of a spark from him almost throughout their myriad of interactions after that. Mm-hmm. And and she's she's chasing this sort of why is this guy special? What is mm-hmm. di- different mm-hmm. about him? Mm-hmm. Why do I like him? He's a groundskeeper. He works in the dirt. He doesn't talk to me. He talks in this weird accent 
that I only half understand. He talks like a Puritan, says thee and thou, and mm-hmm. and it doesn't quite jive with her personal opinion of herself or sure. what it's more she the, the local vernacular, the yeah, accent, mm-hmm. and but eventually she really really falls for him mm-hmm. in a in a deep way mm-hmm. yeah to me the writing of this is very was very powerful to me when i first read it and it still had that um he doesn't when they first meet and clifford is there he doesn't look at her now that may be more out of respect than later she goes on a walk and you know finds herself back he essentially lives in this hut on their property it's their property it's their place it's not his but he has he very much values his privacy or privacy as they would probably say um i have no doubt that part of why i loved this was the obsession with british men that still exists today and the idea of romanticizing all of them which is a topic of its own discussion however <laughs> heavy sigh the the build up to me is very satisfying so she goes out again he doesn't really want anything to do with her and we learn some background about his character that he has been um, married before that he was very burned in this marriage whether you want to say it was his fault or her fault but he has shut himself that part of himself off he does not wish to open himself up to a woman or really anyone he deeply values his privacy however he's a gatekeeper so in a sense he doesn't really have any privacy they have a right to be there just as much as he does but he meets her with um great disdain at first not because he doesn't like her but he does not like the idea of her he considers it dangerous so to me there's a push-pull with the two of them that is satisfying she doesn't realize that she wants him however um she she comes to that understanding pretty quickly so yeah initially she's very reluctant she even has sex with him and isn't sure what to think about the sex um Spoiler. It's not a spoiler. We said there were no spoilers. She has sex with him. She's like, oh, that was weird. I didn't like that. See, and that's where I think we are sense and sensibility. Because to me, the magic of their first encounter, you know, she goes to see the chickens and the way that he, (laughs) when I showed you the page, you were like, all I see is chickens. When does something actually happen? It's like, oh, two two pages later, he touches her knee. You know, but... There was something, I really love the language and the way that it's written. It was very satisfying to me, and it feels authentic. It feels how when you've been in an encounter with someone who you don't know, it it felt authentic to me. And I understand that part. It was just, for me, at least for the first couple of them, she seemed to second-guess herself very much after the fact. So while it yeah. was happening, she was in it, she was, it was, she was involved, and then she would go home and she'd be like, oh, I can't believe I did that. Yeah. And that was a disconnect for me because she, I'm just sitting there second guessing her behavior. Then it's like, well, what do you want? Do you want this? Do you not want this? What, what? Who am I supposed to believe? You're the one initiating this behavior. You are choosing to continue to partake in this behavior, and then in the afterwards, you're like, oh, I can't believe I did that. That was terrible. I'm never going to see him again. And then you avoid him for four days, and then you have an amazing sex in the woods where you both come at the same time, and then your whole world changes. 
Right. So I guess, I mean, that's a very crude way of saying everything that happens. But that's my point. I yeah. if I can't just sit here and, and recite D.H. Lawrence. If you want me to recite right. D.A. Lawrence, get the audiobook. To me, that's the thing I would want the audience to know, is that if you do find this type of prose satisfying, you know, a depiction, there's a lot of themes of the nature and the way that nature and the way that he depicts it matches the state of Connie's soul. I find the writing to be quite beautiful. Um, it is a satisfactory read. The idea I think that comes across is or the idea that he, the idea that he is trying to achieve is that the experiences that Connie has had with sex up until now have been somewhat of a hey what's all the big deal about sex i had sex it's not that big of a deal she her parents were somewhat permissive she um doesn't necessarily equate love with sex however there's a build up here that then um she has a different kind of experience than she's ever had with a different partner. And um, that to me is, it's something that it's, it's hard to talk about generally because it is, you know, D.H. Lawrence gives a lot of time and pages to developing the understanding of what leads her to, like you said, have this, what D.H. Lawrence deems to be the pivotal sexual experience is to orgasm at the same time with your partner. So let's talk a little bit about that. I am never going to disparage orgasming at the same time as your partner. That is a fantastic experience. That being said, there's no shame if one person or the other has to come first. Human bodies are very complicated. Mm -hmm. Things get in the way and the fact that one of them is shameful is is problematic. Yes. And he does, he speaks of it like because women come off second, they're doing it wrong. And they, sh they have to jerk themselves off essentially. And that's why they are almost failures as humans. So to back up a bit, uh, Michaelis is a partner that Connie has sex with prior to meeting Oliver. And he is an intellectual that comes to the house, and he's very frustrated by the fact that he climaxes, and then Connie has to essentially get herself off afterwards. But the same thing happens with Oliver's ex-wife that we all are supposed to demonize, and she does the same thing. So regardless, I mean, to me, again, we haven't touched on this, but D.H. Lawrence is a man. He is writing... I would say mostly from Connie's perspective. He lives in pretty much everybody's head. Yes. But it is mostly from Connie's perspective. And the biggest thing with this idea about <clears throat> a woman having control, and he, he talks about the orgasm being a possession that the woman can either choose to give to a man or hold on for herself. While I like that idea in theory, I don't know that to be a practical reality. Do you? And no. Yeah. Nine times out of ten, it's not necessarily something you have control over. Right. Which to it's, me is the beauty of it. Right. I mean, you can talk yourself out of it sometimes. Sure. But you can't talk yourself into it. Right. And he he uses it almost as like a passive control over women that he has no interaction with. Right. Like he get he he assigns them value based on when they have their orgasm. Right. Which is so problematic. Yes. So terrifying and just 
rocks me down to my core almost. So what what we hope to do in this podcast is not necessarily, we want to acknowledge the problems, but then we want to find where is their truth? Like where is there something that's interesting to talk about now? And so to me, this idea that somehow there needs to be any expectation of an orgasm or any pressure around it is is trouble right and so but I would say that the, the interesting part to me about the relationship between how Connie orgasms with Mellers is that later when she starts to really truly love him and have feelings for him and feel like she might be pregnant with this child she finds that she cannot orgasm unless she's in that space of trust and intimacy and love and that to me is an uh, you know i don't know that that's a more interesting subject right that's what i took from it is that she she you know there's a lot of exchanges between the two of them and when she starts to veer off into the aspect of love, she really has to give herself over in that way in order to have a sexually satisfying experience. If she holds something back, then it's no longer satisfying. Right. What do you think about that? That took, for me, it was a very contrast-oriented aspect of mm-hmm. that because Connie has, I would say, done both. She's she's just chased her orgasm as a purely physical, biological, physiological event and she's also ignored it completely she she essentially put up a wall and said i don't want anything to do with that anymore and then she sort of had this meet in the middle she had a meet in the middle acceptance of her Mm -hmm. orgasm Mm -hmm. contrast that to oliver who as far as i could tell was just physiological the whole time Mm. he never didn't come Mm -hmm. he talked about how great connie was and and commented a couple times about how she didn't seem connected to him. Mm-hmm. But it didn't seem to bother him. Mm-hmm. He just made a comment about it almost in like a, you weren't there, where were you, where were you? Mm-hmm. But in the end of the day, it didn't change his life. It was only Connie that made those opinions. Yeah, the whole idea of men can be selfish in considering how and when a woman orgasms. They don't necessarily want to come and understand. They do not necessarily want to understand and help a woman achieve orgasms. They just see it as a reflection of their ego. Right. And this, or they see it as um, a threat to their ego if a woman cannot control it in some way. And, And I think as women and men, we really have to separate our own personal experience of how we experience sex and orgasm and understand that a way another person does, whether it's same gender or different, is completely not understandable to us because we are so different, not just as male and female, but from female to female and from male to male, right? Yeah, and it doesn't have any impact on your own value as a partner or a human being. Mm -hmm. But also in the same way, you shouldn't villainize somebody who has a different experience than you. Exactly, exactly. So I think what what's a positive aspect of this book is this kind of his use of nature and whether it be to reflect Connie's soul or there's also just some playful parts. Um, yeah, I'm going to read my favorite little okay. bit. Okay, good. There fell a complete silence. Connie was half listening and threading in the hair at the root of his belly a few forget-me-nots that she had gathered on the way to the hut. 
Outside, the world had gone still and a little icy. You've got four kinds of hair, she said to him. On your chest, it's nearly black, and your hair isn't dark on your head, but your mustache is hard and dark red, and your hair here, your love hair, is like a little brush of bright gold mistletoe. It's the loveliest of all. He looked down and saw the milky bits of forget-me-nots in the hair on his groin. Aye, that's where to put forget-me-nots, in the man hair, or the maiden hair. <laughs> They're sitting there. They just stuff flowers in yes, each other's body yes, hair. Yes. It's adorable and hilarious. And it's so, it's it's just so innocent, yeah, almost. It it it's just it's pure and... playing with each other's bodies in a way that doesn't matter. And they do this several times in the book and I really liked those yeah, parts yeah. where she would just make tiny little comments about his penis and he would just mm-hmm. make jokes like they named yes. he named his penis and he named her vagina yes, I love it that. was hilarious yes. and so the you've got hair. these these tender cute innocent almost mm-hmm. bits that are also still heavily sexual mm-hmm. that are really poignant mm-hmm. contrasted with this almost rushed discussion of the actual sex mm-hmm. where sometimes I haven't realized I'm reading the book I don't realize that they have had sex until it's over mm-hmm. and it's for me it was very jarring to contrast something so intense and and intentional as the scene where they're playing with the flowers to some of the other sex scenes where before I realize they're done well, do you think that that had to do with the author's hesitancy to actually describe and explain the act? No, because he sure does it sometimes, just not all okay. the time. Yeah. There's plenty of times where he goes into what I thought would be, is quite a bit more graphic than I was mm-hmm. expecting to get in this mm-hmm. novel. Yeah. And then there are other bits where he just skips it entirely. And I don't know if, it, I mean, the default thing that I can think of is just narrative choice. Right. But it felt like a massive disconnect for me between the two because mm-hmm. I gear more towards these slow build up sort of connective pieces. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you talk about where you got that in the chicken scene, but for me, that was just plot. I didn't get so much of yeah. the emotional connection in the chicken scene. I got Connie's connection to the chickens, but not necessarily <laughs> to Oliver yeah. because okay. he's just kind of there watching the chickens. I, I was sitting there thinking, oh my god, these are adorable tiny little chickens that I just want to love and cuddle. And then over here is this just man mm-hmm. standing mm-hmm. in the scene that she's embodying. Right. That's where I think part of why we love to talk about these is because we understand that people's experiences of them are very different. And what one person finds to be evocative and interesting, the other person doesn't, it doesn't speak to them in that way. And that's okay, right? You find, you know, there's a seat for every ass and an ass for every seat. There's a book for every person. And this for me still in those moments, it's still, even though as I age the actual sex scene, I do prefer more descriptive language. The way that, she was attracted to him and the way that that's described still was very satisfying for me. So that was nice to feel, even though there were so many parts of this book that that were hard for me to understand how I read it and was fine with it as a 17-year-old. <laughs> it's because I didn't understand it, honestly. Yeah, sometimes you just have to acknowledge the fact that 
your vocabulary was different. Yes. You were more innocent. You didn't even know that that word meant something bad in yeah, the first place right. because you'd never encountered it before. How many words have we read in a book, don't know how to pronounce, don't know right. the meaning of, we say in some context and someone goes, oh, that's not what that means. Even right. if it's completely innocent, right. it happens all the time whenever you are consuming something that is just in one media without no context. Right. So after their escapades that usually happen in his hut or the forest, they never have sex in the home. Connie is left with the dilemma of, is this enough? Can I live with Clifford and be his caretaker along with this nurse that we've hired? Or do I want more? Do I want to have a life with Mellors? She's convinced that she's pregnant with his child. So she plans an escape. Um, She's going to go to Venice, tell Clifford she's going to Venice, and eventually Mellors will come and they will begin a life somewhere. I don't think they're planning Venice, they're planning somewhere else. Yeah, they talk about Canada. Okay. They talk about America. (laughs) And then there's a bit about, it doesn't matter, the world is so big now that they can find us anywhere. You get the sense that they are disillusioned. You get the sense that they don't want... Mellors tends to be a little more grounded and wants to think about the realities, whereas Connie just simply does not. Yeah, Um, they both are having to deal with the fact that they have to get divorces, but then practically getting divorces is very complicated. Do you want to deal with that? Do you not want to deal with that? Exactly. There's a lot of drama, for lack of a better word. There's a lot of drama. And it goes back to, you know... Our, the quote we opened with, she's going to live her life versus repent, you know, living to repent that she hasn't lived it. So she somewhat wants to make this choice to try to escape. So while she's away, one, one piece I did enjoy was how she goes to Venice and she senses that people are not sexually awake. She senses there's a lack of sensuality. So again, this goes back to his theme of the former... Europe versus the industrialized Europe. Um, So you sense that something has been revived and awakened in her, no matter what the end of her relationship with Oliver may be. So maybe there's a good there. So she gets a letter and learns that his, that Mellors' wife, Bertha, has come back. Um, She essentially had been living with a man in India. Um, Bertha suspects that Oliver has been with another woman because... She Connie found some had left perfume. these. Yeah, she purposefully left these, you know, perfume-laden items in his belongings, and she said it was kind of a childish thing to do in retrospect. And then, of course, it comes to be. He also the problem. Con- Connie also convinced Oliver to burn the portrait that's of his right. wife right. and him, she finds it. and she found the burned remnants of that's it. Right, that's right. Which doesn't necessarily mean a woman decided to do it. Maybe you should take a little bit of your ego out of there, Bertha. So I don't know if you're a Downton Abbey person, but there's a plot in Downton Abbey that, to me, seemed very similar to Lady Chatterley. So if you have figured out anything, it's that everybody plagiarizes everyone else. (laughs) Yes. yes. (laughs) So Bertha suspects he's been with another woman. She spreads rumors about him. It becomes a you know big scandal. Letters are written. So essentially, Connie finds out about this. Clifford confronts Mellors. Mellors is disrespectful, so he's fired. You know, Mellors, another thing that to me was this very natural confidence and attractiveness about Mellors is that Mellors is not somebody who's going to, he's not going to lie, so he doesn't tell Clifford what happened, but he's also not going to 
you know, plead for forgiveness or take any money or do anything like that. He just quietly walks or, away. Or throw Connie under the bus. Exactly, exactly. And she somewhat says, oh, I wish that you would have just told him about us. And it's like, you know, she, she's, a, she's a little, she's quite naive. And these are, again, things that as a 17-year-old I didn't disrespect her for that, of course, now I do. Probably might have identified with it more than Most you definitely. would have disrespected Most her for definitely. it. Most definitely. So we're left with a little unknown. The book closes with a letter from Oliver to Connie where he gives one of my favorite phrases, we fucked a flame into being. So this idea that there's hope that perhaps on some level they would be able to be together, but we're left with Yeah, he compares it to like the holy flame, the Pentecostal flame, which I identified, well, I didn't identify with, but I really enjoyed that little blasphemic. <laughs> right. That I, I, got a, I got a lot of joy out of that. <laughs> Just like, I'm yes. I'm sure you did. Yes, I'm sure you did. Um yeah, we, you know, there's so much to talk about because we love Connie's dad. You know, we kind of liked his approach. So there's a there's... really creepy bit with Clifford and his nurse that's got some major grapes of wrath energy. <laughs> Just, it, mm. yes. But this is, we don't want to turn this into a seven-hour podcast. Right. The idea that can you, maybe you could argue that you can have some sort of a sexual relationship out of being able to have intercourse. But that 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 dynamic there, considering the fact that her husband... The nurse, you know, died at somewhat at the hands of Clifford's company as the coal mines. There's a, there's a subordinate dynamic there that makes it unattractive on every level, right? Yeah. It's just creepy. It's very creepy. <laughs> so the ending is a little open. What did you think about the ending? I was really happy that the ending was open because... I didn't particularly like Connie, and I only sort of liked Oliver. So if they had ended up happily ever after, I would have gotten that sickly saccharine feeling, and it would have left me with a very distasteful flavor in my mouth. In the same time, you know, if you did like them, you could imagine them having a a pretty happy life together, but Mm -hmm. because it's open-ended, it doesn't carry a weight or expectations of, like, and this is what happened. You don't because to some degree, it doesn't matter what happens mm-hmm. to them. Because that's not the point of the book. Right. Them living happily ever after is not the point of this book. And maybe why I had such a difficulty with it in a traditional romance novel sense. The point of them isn't ending up together. The point of them is finding something within themselves in the first place. Mm. Which means that they could go on in the future to share that with somebody else. That's good. That's interesting, and I find that some individuals who would read this book would look at Connie and say, you owed a duty to your husband to just love and be with him, but the reality was that he was wounded more than just in his body from the war. You know, His soul was very damaged, and there was an insecurity and issues with him that she couldn't fix. And they might have predated the war we don't know we didn't have enough information about clifford absolutely so those themes are interesting to me i liked that so i think that dh lawrence is criticized for that open ending because it feels like a cop-out but at the same time there was no way to satisfy readers in a realistic way because the reality is is that if they do end up together there would have been strife and struggle and I think that it still closes with a dark 
side because it talks about the fall of England <laughs> in the letter. Yeah. And so it's not meant to be an, an upswing. He just... it w- if, if they'd ended up happily ever after, it would have been an antithesis to the book. It would have yes. stood out as very out of place. Mm-hmm. And I think that he really ended it the best way he possibly could have to keep in the tone and the theme and the intention of the novel as a whole. I agree. I agree. So, thank you Blanche. Thank you Blanche. Paige Lawrence, Lady Chatterley's lover. Don't know that I'll read it again in 20 years. No, but that might be the last time. No, but there is a uh, there is a video adaptation with Richard Madden of Game of Thrones mm. fame that we're going to watch after this. Yes, so we are. We're going to go do that. You guys enjoy whatever romance novel you've picked up this week, and we will talk to you later. Talk to you soon. Bye.